Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right. So this week on the show, I sat down with North Face sponsored trail and ultra runner Patty O'Leary for a wide ranging conversation that covered just about everything from racing horses to the history of lacrosse in America to the Irish mountain running scene and a whole lot more. And I think after learning a bit more about Patty's background and his path to competitive trail running, the various rabbit holes we ended up going down in this episode make complete sense. I'll try not to spoil his story here, but I will say Patty's journey from growing up on a farm in Wexford, Ireland, to working as a cancer biologist in the States and running professionally for the North Face is a pretty wild ride. And it was made even more entertaining by Patty's charming Irish brogue. And before we get into that chat, though, I do want to take a quick minute and encourage you all to check out our Blister membership and all the benefits it offers, including access to all of our flash reviews and deep dives, personalized gear recommendations to help you find the right pair of running shoes, discounts on a bunch of really sweet products we love, and a whole lot more. So check out our Blister membership via the link in the show notes. Okay, let's get right into my conversation with Patty O'Leary. All right, welcome, Patty O'Leary. How's it going? Glad to be here chatting with you on this lovely Thursday evening in San Francisco. Yeah, I wanted to have you on, um, not just for your beguiling Irish brogue, but when I think of you, I think of someone that kind of embodies the community aspect of trail running to its full degree. So I wanted to spend some time talking to you about that, among other things, including like your story, how you got into running, um, some of the races you've done this year. Um, but first, I have to start by asking you about something I saw pop up in my Strava earlier this week. You were out riding horses, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was over riding over Loma Alta in North Marine, galloping horses up the hills. It was a uh, it was good fun. Good fun. I grew up in a dairy farm and uh, we had a couple of horses and ponies at home. So it was something I grew up with. And then when I moved to the US, obviously don't have close access to my farm at home. So it's been nice to periodically get out on a horse. And it was my first time up one in like four or five years. So it was good fun. Yeah, I know you've uh, you've expressed interest about trying to combine the two, running and riding together, right? And there's like, that's a thing, correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I was out there, like this Monday, I went riding with uh, Carolyn Latham and her mom, um, one of our S4C team members, and she's done endurance riding, and she's actually training for this event, an event that I did five years ago as well, called Ride and Tie. So it's, I say it's, it's a team of three people, or a team of three, two people and one horse, and you've got everyone from A to B over like a 30 to 40 mile trail. So one person hops up on the horse and starts riding out on the trail, and then at some assigned time they'll hop off and start running the runner catches up with the horse hops on board gallops after the runner and you keep leapfrogging each other to try to get all three individuals two people on a horse across the line so carolyn was training to do that in like three weeks time and um she wanted to see if i wanted to go and join her and uh yeah it's something maybe i'll i i did it in 2016 i teamed up with a lady from marin and uh, mary Tuscarnia, who at the time was 71 i think and uh, we went and did the World Championships down in, um, in San Diego. That was July 4th, 2016. So almost five years, almost six years ago. How does that look like 
practically? Like, how do you run with a horse? Like, are there different techniques to it? And uh, how do you run? Well, the horse is pretty fast, is much faster than the human. So they, they would run on ahead. So usually you'd have like the rider would get far enough ahead that they would stop and they'd tie the horse to a tree, to a post, whatever, and start running on. So then the runner would be able to catch, would take a little bit of time for the catch up with them. I was moving pretty fast, so I was pretty much running like right behind my rider. So I ended up, we ended up being pretty lopsided on who ran and who rode. So I would like run two miles, ride 200 meters, run two miles, ride 200 meters. So I ended up doing like 33 to 35 miles. Mary ended up doing maybe two of the 35, but uh, it worked out well given our abilities. Have you ever thought of uh, burrow racing where you actually like <laughs> drag the horse with, or drag the burrow with you? Yeah, I've seen the burrow racing a little bit out in Colorado, and it's definitely something they, they're much more stubborn than, uh, than horses, so uh, it seems like more chaotic. I would love to try it and give it a go, um, but it seems chaotic, just chaos out there. I remember Max King. And, and Ryan Sandys a few years back in the middle of Philomar for Solomon. Um, it looks like a lot of fun, but it just looks like hardship too. It's a look at the draw as well, about what animal you get. I don't know if you watched, watched the Olympics this past year. Um, the eventing was a competition where... Oh no, sorry, scratch that, not eventing. The pentathlon. So the modern pentathlon is like the original sport of the Olympics where someone runs, horse rides, shoots, swims, and fences. And the final event was the show jumping. But as a way of kind of equalizing the uh, kind of, so people can like, bring their own very expensive horse to do it. So like countries that have more resources and better horses, they do, the host country supplies all the horses and then they randomly assign people a horse. And the lady who was leading come into it, a German lady, and the Irish woman was like third going into the finals. They just got terrible horses and they ended up threw them off immediately and they ended up losing the title. So uh, since then, that's kind of just upended that whole sport. And I think they're dropping riding from the modern pentathlon, which is the longest sport in the Olympics. They're dropping like one fifth of it because of stubborn animals. Uh, so it's kind of a, it's an interesting story and interesting thing to look up. Yeah, I had no idea about any of that. Ireland, we don't win that many medals and we had a good shot at winning this as a medal. So like we were just, we were all raging. We we're like, why didn't they give us a good one? Or how do we equalize this a little bit better? So you mentioned growing up on a farm. Can you tell me a little bit more about your childhood and your background? Yeah, so I grew up on a dairy farm in southeast Ireland in a place called Wexford. As youngest five, so my parents, Pat and Mag, and then my brother, Seamus, sister Mary, sister Anne, brother Eamon, and then young Patrick. And yeah, we grew up on a farm with dairy cows, with sheep, with pigs, with uh, a couple of ponies and horses and a few dogs. Um it was kind of a cool way to grow up. You grew up with a like with a hard work ethic. You would uh, go home in the evenings and you would feed the animals or go ride the horses or do whatever, and then you go do your homework. Being honest, like if my siblings overheard this, given I was the youngest, they would say that's a big bullshit, Paddy. You did so little work because you were the youngest. It's kind of somewhat accurate, but it did still worked hard relative to the the general kid of my age. Um, but they, they took all the, the hard, the big jobs and they left me out to do the, uh, the little things like feeding the calves and things like that. Where did uh, running come into play? I know I've, I've run with you over the last few years and I think I've heard your kind of journey to running in bits and pieces, but I feel like this is a great time uh, to get that whole trajectory on record. Uh, mm-hmm. So how'd that come about? So my dad was actually big into running. He, was, uh, he did cross-country running as a kid when it was quite small in Ireland. 
Um, so well into her, not as a kid, as a kind of a teenager and as a as a young adult, he ended up because he was trying to balance that with farming, which is quite demanding labor. He ended up hurting his back in like his mid twenties, so he didn't compete beyond that. But he ended up getting involved in um, organizing kind of a running team back in my area. Growing up, many of the five kids, we all ran a little bit, but I never really took it too seriously. I did a bit of cross country and whatnot, but I was always distracted by team sports, hurling and football, Irish um, Irish native games, uh, up to my teens, and then in college I played lacrosse. But um, So I did a little bit as a kid, but then it was when I moved to San Francisco. Prior to that, I'd done a couple of charity 5 and 10K races with some colleagues back in Dublin, but when I moved over to San Francisco, I got involved in the November Project this free fitness running group that uh, kind of was a gateway into my running community or into a, a fitness community here. And through them, I started running more and found my way into trail running and got introduced to the San Francisco Running Company uh, trail running group. And uh, from there, I was just like, oh, you can run in these mountains and you can run people run these distances. People run 30 kilometers, people run 50 kilometers, people run 100, they run 100 miles. Um, so I kind of I got very intrigued by that. And that was like kind of late 2014, early 2015. Um, so it was always kind of around the periphery of running, but it was kind of, I'd kind of given up on it throughout my college, late teens, college years. And then it was cool to come back full circle, like 2015, start taking it seriously again. And like, that was it, like it was 25 or 26 at the time. And I started just pushing the distances further and further and further. You mentioned playing lacrosse and i i don't think ireland is uh is known for their lacrosse uh at least at least over here how did you uh how did you fall into that sport in 2005 i went to university college dublin uh, to start my undergrad we had this thing freshers week so it was like the first week of college where people were introduced to different sports clubs and societies people didn't take like i think the contrast between college sports here and in the us and back home in ireland are quite different People do sports more, play sports more for the social side of things, uh, less than like the perf- American college sports are pretty much unpaid professionals. Um, over there, we do more for fun and experience. So like you go and you join loads of different clubs in your first week. Like I signed up for the Gaelic football team. I signed up for the ultimate frisbee team. I signed up for the equestrian team. I signed up for the lacrosse team. And that was like the first lacrosse there was one other lacrosse club was set up the previous year by a couple of Americans who moved over and one of them happened to work at that college. So he went up and he set up a stand at University College Dublin and tried to get some new kind of form, like Irish young young people involved in lacrosse, which is a sport that was not existing there at the time. And yeah, so I was playing it really poorly. We were all playing it, running around. It was just organized. It was unorganized. It was chaotic. And, but we kind of really got to love this, this sport and, because we were the only team in Ireland, we had to travel abroad to play games. So, like within two or three months, I flew to Frankfurt on a cheap Ryanair flight and played a game against all these expat Americans who were in like the army base in Frankfurt. And we got absolutely killed, but we had so much fun with them. So uh, I kind of got on a quick upward trajectory and learning the learning the game. Within a year or two, we ended up setting up an Irish national team. There had been an Irish national team before, but it was all Irish Americans living over here. So we ended up merging the two, the Irish-born players and the Irish-American players, and I ended up competing in, within two years, my first World Indoor Lacrosse Championships. My opening game was against Canada in a, in a ice hockey stadium in Nova Scotia, in, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and played our first game against Canada, who were the best indoor lacrosse team, box lacrosse team in the world, and played in front of 2,000 people. It was a wild experience. We ended up losing 25-1, to 1, but when we scored that one goal, 
everyone just went insane. It was so fun. Um, but uh, yeah, so I ended up uh, in 2007, I ended up starting the first Irish lacrosse league. So I kind of took over that, took over that mantle, kind of managing that community. And we ended up setting up satellite teams around Ireland and ended up organizing teams that would travel to play other games around Europe. So we ended up traveling abroad two or three times a year to play lacrosse. And the community was quite a lot, was, I guess the, the lacrosse community was a lot different in Europe <clears throat> versus uh, America, where America was all based around college professionalism, whatnot. In Europe, they're like, come play our tournament. Have so much fun. Let's go for beers afterwards. Let's teach each other how to play the game. It was really inclusive. Um, really enjoyed it about, about the sport. Also, I think many people listening to this podcast don't really know that lacrosse is America's original game. It was a Native American. It's, it is a Native American sport that the Haudenosaunee uh, people of um, kind of upstate New York, uh, lower Ontario area. It's a game they played for for centuries and beyond. And they actually, the Iroquois, they're now relabeled as the, the original name, the Haudenosaunee. They compete as their own nation in the World Games. I've got to play against them two or three times, and it was an unbelievable experience. But back in Europe, we learned about the history of the game immediately. So in Europe, it wasn't this prep school East Coast game. It was like this Native American game. And you may get to play against the creators of the game at some stage. And it was kind of a, it was a really cool experience. I think we kind of get into the history and the true meaning behind the sport quite early in our career was playing, which I loved. Speaking of histories of sport, I want you to talk to me about fell running, because I think that is very specific to, uh, yeah, your side of the Atlantic. I kind of understand what it is. I know it's like particular to, yeah, like the Lakes District and that kind of area and embodies a certain style of running, but uh, I don't know too much about it. So think about think about running. Like we've just been running, like for millennia, we've been running across hills, whether we're chasing down a deer or whether we're sending a message or whether we're doing something like that. I think fell running, which is kind of the North England, Scotland name for mountain running, um, they've been using it as a sport and as an event for well, probably well over 100 years, where they would ha- traditionally have races across the fells, which is across the bogs and the hillsides, where they might go from town to town or town to mountaintop and back down. So often the courses, like, and that's still to this day, often the courses are unmarked. And so instead of following trails, you're just picking your best line up the side of a mountain and down the side of a mountain. A lot of people who do fell running, and we call it mountain running in Ireland, um, uh, but the, the same sport, the same concept, um, they have to be very good at compass and mapping, at navigation, because a course might not be marked very well. It might only have a couple of flags. It might have no flags. Um, but you have to figure out your best way up and down. Also, knowing the hills is a key thing. So, like, people who kind of go in and they do reckeys beforehand and say, oh, this is the best line up this hill because I could sneak through those bushes. Or if you're running through, like, ankle or knee-high gork or a thicket um, or heather, you're like, oh, I think I'm running across the top of these bushes, but three feet to my left, there's actually a deer or sheep path that makes it a lot quicker. So actually getting to know the mountains and getting to kind kind of be part of the mountains helps you a lot better with that. Um, it also encourages like to get ready for these races. Just gets you into the mountains more. Um, it's kind of a whole different ball game the sport back there because the weather is so across the UK and Ireland. The weather just changes so much. Like I was joking the other day, we were talking about uh, like weather reports, and in Ireland, every weather report is they say it's sunny spells and scattered showers because that's anything you can get in like a twenty minute period. It could be 
blazing sunshine, 20 minutes later it's just pissing rain on top of you, and then it switches back. You can get all the different seasons in one day. Or as you go up the side of a mountain, you can get all the different seasons as you ascend or descend. Um, so you have to be kind of prepared for everything. So I think everyone's pretty hardy in terms of the, mount- the mountain runners out there. They're pretty hardy and pretty resilient and pretty well able for anything that's thrown at them. Was it big when you were growing up? I didn't know anything about it. That was the well thing. It has been, like it, it was big as being, people have been mountain running in Ireland for, for the, I think the Irish Mountain Running Association just may have just had its 50th or 40th anniversary. Um, I didn't know about it at all. I kind of heard rumblings of this sport that you can run up and down mountains when I was in college. I heard it through the athletics team there. But uh, I did one or two, like five and 10 Ks before I left for Ireland because I, I went and did an obstacle course race. Uh, it's like They called it Helen Backers Company there, but it's basically a Tough Mudder. I did one of them on a hillside in Wicklow, just south of Dublin in 2013, a few months before I moved here. And from that, I started Googling it. I bought, like, because I ended up winning that race and ended up winning a pair of shoes, fell running shoes, in a pair of old Innovate fell running shoes. And I was like, huh, how can I use these? So I looked up one or two mountain races and did them. And that kind of, set the spark that was further enhanced when I moved to San Francisco and kind of found a great community there. I feel like all you need to know about fell running can be like gleaned from looking at a pair of Innovate shoes, which are look like soccer cleats. You know, they've got these lugs that are like eight to 10 millimeters deep uh, just for like, for the bogs, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The bogs are a whole different ball game. Just, uh, just this past like two months ago, we brought one of uh, myself and Matt's mutual friends, Olivia Amber. She's one of my teammates with the North, on the North Face athlete team. She came back with uh, myself and my girlfriend Eleanor to uh, to do a little quick trip to Ireland in May, and we did a sky race back in Northwest Ireland in County Donegal, the Seven Sisters Skyline. So it was a twenty-eight k point to point across these seven mountains that I'm not going to attempt to pronounce. So it's across the Derry Van Mountain Range in Donegal. And the seven sisters, they're Mukish, Nakalara, Akla Beg, which is, I'm not sure what Akla is, but Beg is, is small. Uh, Ardlock Nebrak Badi, that's a mountain name, mountain name. Akla Moor, which is big Akla. Uh, Makokt, and Erigal. Erigal is the biggest one. But uh, we used to, like Olivia, we would try to get her, get her to pronounce the names, and it's hilarious to, to, to listen to it. They're all uh, in the original Irish language or Gaelic Gaelic language, um, but that race was a thirty twenty eight k thirty k with seventy hundred or seventy five hundred feet of climbing. But like the ups were fine, you could just get in, you can just grind up the hill. But then on the on the flats and the downs, it was just energy sapping because it's all bog. I felt the day I felt like eight times. It often you'd fall and bounce back up again. Uh, it rained the day before the days before, so it was just trend, tremendously slippery. Um, but I felt the day after the race, I had this pain down my core, like in parts of my core that hadn't got worked in years. They call it the bog stability muscles, where you're just trying to stay balanced in the bog. Uh, I got worked in places that uh, I hadn't got worked in a long time. But that race was cool in that it was um, the it got selected for the World Mountain Running Association uh, World Cup, and it was the opening race of the World Cup. So it was kind of our first sky race of. Uh, of presence uh, back home in Ireland, which is pretty cool because, like, we have tremendous mountain running and tremendously, like, it, we have mountain running that's different to what people are used to in, in the US and used to in the Alps. It adds a whole different element of challenge 
Um, so we're re- I've been really trying to push people to come back with me to race there. And Olivia was my first friend and uh, kind of an elite runner from the US to come back with me to do to do a race. So that was a uh, that was really cool to see. Has Ireland experienced the kind of a similar boom in trail running as the US has over the last like ten years or so? Yeah, yeah, the last ten years or so. Every Ireland, so the Irish mountain running scene has been going for like thirty or 40, 50 years, but it's managed by the governing body who organize the races and they're all kind of led by volunteers so you're only starting to get some like private companies come in to organize races the majority races are organized in, like by the governing body which is led by volunteers and the entries are like 20 euro or 30 euro to do a race and you have your same bib that you use every year or every race throughout the year you have to hold on to your bib and you have to pay for a new one if you lose it um, and at the end you just go to a pub for tea and pints or whatever um, but then the last maybe 10 years kind of following on and like Born to Run and Ultra Marathon Man and all those books, people started doing ultra races at home. Um, and some kind of companies are organizing uh, races. And IMRA, there's many organizations are organizing races. So like every weekend in Ireland, which is a pretty small country, there's two or three races going on. So you have a whole plethora of races that, that you can do. But then if you think about the ultra distance stuff, like like the last 10 years, you've experienced that boom, but there has been ultra marathon efforts that have been happening in Ireland for longer than that. Like there's some of the uh, kind of on the IMRA, the Irish Mental Running Association website, they have like stories of people wrote, like they had their first website that started in like two, year 2000. And there's like stories from the early 2000s and from before that of people like like running across Ireland or running the length of Ireland or there's... There's one guy, Robbie Bryson, who was actually, he came fourth in the World Mountain Running Championships in the early 90s. He uh, did this tremendous endurance effort where he biked and ran Ireland's 15 biggest peaks. So our, the peaks in Ireland aren't that, they're 3,500 feet, I think it's the biggest one. But they're up and down, it's all, the vertical relief is insane. So he like started on the top of one of them, he ran down, took his bike, biked 100 miles to the next one ran up and down that, biked 80 miles to the next set, ran up and down the 12 of them that were in one row there, down and biked the 50 miles to finish the last one. So something like 250 miles of biking, like 30 or 40 miles of running with about 30,000 feet of climbing. And he did it in 23 hours and 37 minutes, just under 24 hours. Um, and no one has attempted that yet. And I've, I've recently bought a, bought a, a gravel bike and I th- I'm like thinking about trying to do it at some stage. I have no confidence that I could do it in less than two days, let alone one day, but it'd be cool to try it. Uh, but that happened in, like, he did that in 99. So, like, people have been doing this shit in Ireland for a while. Yeah, and that's before, like, having, you know, the map loaded on your watch, too. Yeah. That actually makes me think of one other reference of a, of a race that happens in Ireland, the Art O'Neill Challenge, which I, I'm not sure how long it's been going. It's been going at least 10 years, maybe longer. But that's based on, and I could butcher my history lessons in this, but Art O'Neill was in the 18, I think it was in the 1800s, in a cold January night, he broke out of a jail, him and his brother broke out of a jail in Dublin, and they went, ran across the south of Dublin city, and then into the mountains, they didn't have lights or anything like that, um, and this was a cold winter night, they broke out at midnight, and they end up making it. They were trying to make it to this lodge uh, in Glenmalore, which was like, I think about like 40 miles straight away, if you took the best line. Um, he ended up, one of them made it, one of them died about five miles before the lodge. And they have a cross where he died, the Arthur Neil Cross. 
now people have started this race. Uh, it's a fundraiser for Dublin Mountain, uh, Dublin Wicklow Mountain Rescue. They organize it and have this race where it starts on like the first Saturday or Jan- Friday of January, um, regardless of weather, starts at midnight. And you cannot use a, a watch, you have to use a compass and map. And you have to beeline from the jail, the main of jail, to the where that the town, the village trips are that large. And you try to take your best line. People are doing it in like maybe four or five hours or, or much, much, much longer. But uh, like it's in terrible conditions. Like it's the first week of January in Ireland where it's just heinous weather. But uh, that's something that's like, that happened like 200 years ago. There's a couple of races around like the initial the initial effort. And there's a couple of races around that they've, they've, people have designed where they're following like old historical movements of armies or of like people escaping from jail or escaping the English or something like that. So it's kind of a, a lot of cool events around like that. Yeah. And I mean, I think that kind of like ties into um, like rounds, right? Like mm-hmm. I've, I've heard of the Bob Graham round and like the Patty Buckley round. And I know that's kind of like a, a unique aspect of like uh, Irish mountain running culture. Can you give me a brief synopsis of like her, I guess, definition of what a round is and, and maybe uh, some more examples? Yeah. So the ra- a round, the mountain round, it started in the Lake District of uh, North England. This guy called Bob Graham wanted to see how many peaks that he could do in the Lake District in 24 hours. He ended up doing, it could be like 28 or 29 peaks, and they assigned that as the Bob Graham round. This was, I guess it was like somewhere, sometime in the early 1900s. Um, so he completed that, and then over the years, people have attempted to finish that list and do it in under 24 hours. And then they've ended up reducing it down to Killian Journey, beat the record and dropped it to like 11 or 12 hours uh, two or three years ago. But now people have started to set up similar rounds and there's one in Wales called the Paddy Buckley round. It's a list of peaks and you have to do in less than 24 hours. Then, and you can take whatever line you want between the peaks as well. So like kind of doing a bit of research and picking your best lines will help a lot. Then there's the Charlie Ramsey round, which is kind of a very, it's in the Scottish mountains. And that's also under 24 hours. And there's a lot more ridges there. Sounds kind of sketch. Um, those three rounds, the route, you're allowed to use a GPS with them and you're allowed to have pacers with them. In the mid-2000s, uh, two lads in Ireland set up, they wanted to set up one in the Wicklow Mountain in Ireland. So they set up the Wicklow round. But they wanted to make it a true mountain test. So they said, we want people who are mountain skilled. So you can't follow a GPS. You can't have a pacer. You have to use compass and a map. And then they set up the Wicklow round, and we ended up with 26 peaks. Um, best line would probably be around 110 kilometers, taking your best lines. And you can do it in less than 24 hours. And that was finished for the first time by this lady, Maura Sullivan, in 2009. And then a day later, another mountain runner, Ian Keith, dropped her record from like 22 to down like to like, or 23 to like 18. And Ian's record stood for like 10 years until in 2017. Joe McConaughey, String Bean, so he had the PCT record for a while, the AT record for a while, uh, Brooks runner from Seattle, Washington. He uh, he recently won the Cocodona 250. He broke the record um, by like maybe an hour or 45 minutes down to like 17, 15. At that time, I was already planning to go back and try to take Ian's record and make a film about it. Myself and my two friends, Ryan Skura and Dylan Lads, uh, they have a film production, filmmaking uh, company called Dooster. We had, uh, we'd been planning to go back and make a film about me attempting the round and tell the story of the Irish mountain running community. And then Joe McConaughey, lo and behold, comes in and smashes the record and makes everything much more challenging. 
he also made a film about it and we're like, ah, oh, and we got scooped on the film too. But Joe had an absolutely stunning day, so he could see every mountain, so he didn't even become some at all. Um, but he had never ran in these mountains before, and he only flew in for four days and managed to beat the record in that, so it was very impressive. So a year later, we decided to go back and do it in April. And the only time I was able to make it, make it back was in April, and ended up the weather was just absolutely terrible. So I go out to try to beat Joe's record, where the first like half of the route, I couldn't see anything, because it was like 50 feet of visibility because of the fog. It was like 50 mile an hour winds. It was like maybe zero degrees Celsius wind chill. So like just about freezing. And I put my head down and charged through it anyway and managed to get over the, all the correct mountains and ended up beating Joe's record by like 45 minutes. Dropped it to 16.27. And people were like, this record is never going to be broken. Paddy did it in that those terrible conditions. It was like uh, like a unbelievable performance. And so we're like, cool, that's great. That makes our film, wraps it up. We got good Irish weather, uh, beat the record. We interviewed a lot of people, told a bit about the mountain running community. And grand, a week later, we hear the Ireland's top orienteer, Shane Lynch, was going for it, had been planning to go for it at the same time. And he was raging that I got in there before him. So he went for it and we happened to be there to watch it. We were still in the country. He had had a nice good weather day, maybe a bit too warm. But uh, he ended up beating my record by three minutes. So you dropped it from 1627 to 1624. But we were there to film it. So we're like, well, records are there to be broken. We got to film that. And that kind of made our story. And a month later, my buddy who was uh, who was crewing me for my attempt at the Wickler round, he ended up taking an hour off the record. So like in the space of a month, the record just got shattered, beaten, and then shattered again. Uh, so it stands at 15.04 now. And uh, no one has attempted it now since Gavin's, Gavin did it. He's been there. He's had it for three years now. Um, I will go back and get it and Gavin I will take it from you at some stage but not yet I need to see Gavin had no, he knew the course very well so he took the best lines he may have he was much smarter about it he might have ran 10 kilometers less than me because he took better lines throughout the whole day um, so I'll have to do a little bit of research yeah how would you go about like improving your orienteering skills because I think like at a certain point like yeah fitness is great but if you're going in the wrong direction that like doesn't yeah. really serve you all that well I think my orienteering skills are pretty good, like setting bearings and going the right direction. But um, getting to know the course uh, would help a lot because um, like, like I might have been one or two degrees off and I went into the forestry in the wrong place, but I didn't know that there's a little tiny gap over here. Or like picking the traditional way of between like peak 23 and peak 24, people would run. They were like, one is at the bottom and one is like three miles north of there. People would traditionally run west, get onto for a mile, get onto a road, run like six miles on the road and connect back across. But Gavin just shot straight down into this valley through a lot of bushes, trespassed in a bit of property and then went up the other side. But he ended up running six or seven kilometers less than we did. So uh, he ended up saving like 30 minutes from that alone. So that would help. Picking a good weather day could have helped me about 45 minutes as well. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Do, you, do you think there's any appetite for like that type of i guess racing in the u.s yeah well we've already seen it like we've already seen it spread across the world so down in cape not the u.s but in cape town south africa uh ryan sand set up 13 peaks so it's 13 peaks around table mountain and and uh around table mountain and cape town and they try to do it under 24 hours so they have that we have a similar thing in uh nolan's 14 in colorado yeah that one's so burly, like people are, the record is like 35 or 36 or 40 hours or something like that. 
Um, I think there definitely is an appetite for doing something more on the 24-hour scale, but to my knowledge, no one has done something similar. No one has tried to establish something similar to that. We do have, for example, over in, in Desolation Wilderness, we have the Seven Summits of Desolation um, that people do, but that's like a six-hour run or a seven-hour run. Mike Sinceri has the record for that, one of my North Face teammates, and he, uh, he has that down to like six and a half hours. You do have, well, I guess you have the likes of like Barclays, a kind of similar-ish event. It's kind of not rounds. You're more you're instead of tagging summits, you're tagging books. But there is communities across the US are doing very similar things to that. Uh, we have a couple of groups who do stuff like that in the Bay Area and in Northern California um, with people doing it all over. So like, there's definitely a lot of people who are big into orienteering who love that idea. Uh, I would love to see more people establish these types of rounds, though. Right. And I think that's what's so cool about those those types of, of rounds or, um, I don't know, like routes, I guess you could call them, is that they are like fundamentally a community based event. They're not owned by anyone. There doesn't have to be like a particular like race day that everyone like has to like toe the line at. It's, it's very much like word of mouth. Um, and I think that's like pretty unique about our sport. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. So let's shift tax a little bit and talk about how you made your way to San Francisco. Yeah, so I was in UCD, 2005, 2009, doing an undergraduate in pharmacology and biochemistry. Uh, at the time, I did a couple of internships doing cancer research and labs at, uh, at the college. And in 2009, when I was graduating, I decided I was going to stay on and do a PhD in uh, cancer biology at UCD, at uh, my college in Dublin. Ended up doing a PhD there until 2013. At, during that time, I did do a fellowship in Houston for a few months. And I kind of like, I, I mainly what dragged me to the US to go to Houston was I wanted to play more lacrosse. When I got to the end of 2013, I was about to finish the PhD. I was like, oh, I want to go to the US because I want to play more lacrosse. I want to kind of change it up from Dublin. So we ended up seeing an advertisement for um, a very serendipitous advertisement. I saw a, a, a poster hanging up in my institute with a picture of the Golden Gate Bridge and uh, it was like postdoc positions available in San Francisco. Please reach out to this guy, Martin McMahon. So I went into my current boss at the time. I'm like, oh, do you know this fella? And he was like, by chance, that guy messaged me yesterday. He, uh, I'd invited him over to a conference, so we're starting to talk about that. It ends up this man is a Scottish fella who moved to San Francisco like 30 years ago. And my boss was like, I'll put in a good word for you. And ended up uh, meeting up with that guy next time he was in Europe. He ended up offering me a postdoc. And I moved up to San Francisco, and I didn't know anything about it. Uh, to work at University of California, San Francisco, UCSF. I didn't know anything about San Francisco at the time beyond watching the film The Rock. That was about NBC Doubtfire. That's kind of it. Sister Act as well. I, I'd seen that too. Um, that was kind of it. Uh, I didn't know anything about like how like kind of culturally diverse the place was. The amount of history. Uh, there wasn't a place. The amount of outdoor access. There wasn't a place. It was pretty fascinating uh, once I got here, and I fell in love with the city almost immediately yeah so you've you've lived here for how long now nine years nine years what do you what what keeps you here i guess is what i'm asking aside from just a job um because i think a lot of professional trail runners would be like oh you can't train for a, a proper mountain race at sea level in like a major metropolitan area right uh many many things keep me here but one is the ability I think the ability to have a balanced life, I think, is something I can get here in San Francisco, where I can train for mountain running, I can have great outdoor access, I can work at a 
top quality research institution and then I can, when I'm processing my green card at the moment, when I have that, I can work in other fields quite easily. Um, the city is the most European of American cities, I feel, so there's a lot of cultural diversity and um, personally I feel it's more laid back um, that, that I've seen in other cities across the US, but people might question that as well. Um, but I think uh, the city affords a lot of balance and I think a balanced life is one of the most key things. And that's that's one thing I've found. It's one of the things I value most in life, is balance. Like, a, I bet I could be a better, sci- a more successful scientist if I wasn't getting so distracted by community fitness and running and previously lacrosse. I bet I could be a better runner if I was doing it full time. But I kind of like the balance to balance it all. Also, the second point is that I can really found a really good community here of like-minded individuals who appreciate balance, who appreciate the outdoors, who appreciate. Um, valuing community and kind of helping people all around them. I've kind of found found my people here. What do you do to help build community, and like why is it so important to you? I was when I grew up, I was my parents were great at building community in our area. They uh, they helped manage this group called the Community Games, which was kind of an all Ireland organization that uh, did sport and activities for youth, and they ended up having competitions across all different sports and activities from table quizzes to running to soccer or rugby or whatever and they have it at all Ireland level a provincial level a county level and then a, a parish or an area level and my parents have organized a lot of events in, in the parish and to get people from the different schools in the area out to do these sports so it's something they really instilled in me from a very young age and it kind of it gave me so much joy and it kind of opened up so many opportunities for me so it went from that from like being involved in community games at the youth, from like different sports and uh, activities, we won the community games table quiz twice, not once, but twice all the table quiz champion, free free community games, County Wexford. There you go. But from that to lacrosse, where like I was kind of involved in setting up this early community of this sport and trying to grow that and try to grow the European lacrosse community through to November projects when I got involved in that group it was kind of my people in the city and I got to know this city so well and a lot of people across this city so well through November project through to San Francisco running company the trail running community and then through like as I started getting involved at North Face I got to travel more to more races and I got to meet people from all different continents uh, who just shared this love with the sport and who were so like all of these sports I've found myself doing, people just really want other people to enjoy their sport with them. And uh, that's something I've really enjoyed. Do you think there's something unique to trail running that kind of helps cultivate like a really strong sense of community, like more so than um, maybe in other like hobbies or activities? Um, I think you compare like, if say if you compare back to like the probably the closest thing would be road running or triathlon running or something like that. Yeah. I feel road running and triathlon running and tra- triathlon running. It's part of it. We're sharding the two sports there. Uh, but these other sports are much more, I guess they're much more professional or much more like solely focused on drive and about hitting metrics and things like that in competition versus trail running. It's kind of more about they just want people... Like it started where people just want to get out into the mountains because that's that's where it started. It started. It's kind of further down the line in terms of where competition becomes really important. It's not to say that there isn't a like a very high level of competition in their sport. It is, but 
generally like when I'm doing an ultra race competing in a in UTMB or CCC and I'm running in, in the top 10 of that race I'm still chatting to the person beside me and helping them to move forward we're not like pushing them over or sending them in the wrong direction or not wanting them to succeed we want to help our peers succeed as well we want to push everyone forward and then we go to the when we finish the race we wait at the finish line or we come back to the finish line to see the last runner across the line like we were up in western states two weeks ago and one of the most memorable moments in sport is watching the golden hour at western states so western states is this 100 mile race from tahoe to auburn and it's been going on for 30 40 for 40 years 50 years 40 years and um, where it's a 30 hour cutoff the winner is finishing like 14 15 hours there might be 50 100 people there to watch that but then at the 30 hour mark the following morning there's thousands of people there to watch the last person finish and i love that about the sport like everyone is valued yeah i remember but yeah as you said like two weeks ago um i was up there pacing a friend didn't sleep much at all but was definitely like definitely made sure i was there to watch the final runners come in and I, once i got on the track i like started i started crying because it was just like such an emotional event you know like these people have been working so hard and like the biggest crowd as you said is there to like cheer them in um how was your western states you were up there crewing and pacing right yeah, I was up there crewing and pacing uh, my buddy Drew Holman. Uh, Drew, I crewed and paced him last year. He came third. And last year was a very, 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 very hot year. So it was kind of a miserable experience all around for everyone, from runners and pacers. Uh, but we had a great success. But this year, uh, we're back here pacing again. And we had the goal of uh, we, wanted to, uh, we wanted to enjoy the race a lot more, but also, also still do well. So I think a lot of the runners, I mean, on the men's side, the men are known to go out way too hard. Women are more patient and smarter racers than men traditionally. Many of the men were actually pretty smart this year as well. So ended up like halfway through it. People were running like 20 minutes behind their splits from the previous year. But then everyone else ended up finishing better than that because it was, though it was slightly cooler. It was still pretty, pretty warm. It was over 100 degrees in some places. Um, on both the men's and women's side, everyone started, everyone raced well. And there was some like really stellar times. Uh, I paced through the last 20 miles. Me climbed from ninth place to fifth place uh, at mile 99. And going up the last climb, Drew was still flying it. I had uh, I kind of pushed it so hard with Drew, and my legs kind of fell off. And my buddy Fernando was there with a mile to go to run in the last section. And I was like, Fernando took Drew, and I'm like, you guys are good. Go six minute mile, finish it off. And I uh, kind of walked in, and uh, it was it was there like five minutes after he finished. But I got a lot of uh, grief on uh, YouTube through uh, Dylan Bowman and Corinne Malcolm on their uh, their live stream for that about getting dropped. Uh, but I passed them off to a different pacer is my argument and I'm sticking with it. Yeah, set the record straight. Yeah. Do you have any desire to run that race one day? I do. I do. Seems right up your alley. It's runnable and I'm, I'm probably better at the runnable stuff, Like, um, but I enjoy the mountain stuff a lot more. Um I do want to do it one, one day. It's not calling me yet. I've done 100 miler. I did a probably pretty idiotic first choice for a first 100 miler. Was a, I did UTMB, uh, Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc, which is Western States has 20,000 feet of climbing in 100 miles. UTMB is 33,000 feet of climbing in 110 miles. Um, so it was, a, it, was a, it was a big first day. Uh, that broke me for a year or two after that. I was pretty drained after that. And I think I'm only on the way out of that. And that was in 2019. Uh, I think I'd like to go back and do that again next year. Western States I do want to do at some stage. 
and I kind of have a thought in the back of my mind about how I want to do it. Uh, this came from, we mentioned at the start of the conversation about I was at horse riding this weekend with Carolyn Latham. Uh, she's done, so Western States came from a horse race originally. It was the Tevis Cup, which is a 100-mile horse ride from Malefic Valley to Auburn. And one of the regular Tevis Cup competitors in like 1978, I think, could, I could be slightly wrong there, he uh, showed up for the race and his horse was hurt. So he said, all right, I'm going to run it. And he ran it. The next year, he hadn't trained his horse in time. So he said, all right, I'll run it again. The year after that, him and his buddies said they'll start launching it as a, as a running race. And since then, more people have done the running race, the Western States, than they've done the Tevis Cup. But there is a, in the 80s, there was much more people doing both the ride and the run. And also, as people did ride and tie, the sport we mentioned earlier. And they had a thing called the Triple Crown for people to get an award if they kind of got the label, the Triple Crowner, if they uh, did all three events. I would like to try to do that. And I'd love to try to do it all in one year, which is over the space of a month. I've never done an endurance horse ride. I've done like 20, 30 mile horse rides at home as a kid, but I haven't done anything longer. And so it's somewhere further down the line I'd like to do that. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I was met. Carolyn had asked me to team up with her for the Riding Tide Champs at the end of the month, but I'm uh, I'm up in Alaska visiting Eleanor, so I won't get a chance to uh, to do it. But I think later this year, next year, I'm going to try to do another Riding Tide. I have to start getting my qualification races for the Tevis Cup because you have to have raced cumulative 300 miles of endurance racing to be allowed into Tevis Cup. So you'd have to do like three one other 100 milers or six 50 mile horse rides. So I need to start doing that now. Need to find a friend that give me a horse as well. In the Bay Area, yeah, might be area, might be yeah. slightly tricky. Yeah. Uh, what is like the average finish time of like a Tevis Cup rider? Like, is it? I think someone told me the other day the record is like eleven hours. It's like three hours faster than the horse than the, the run. That's insane. Um, I want to talk a little bit about another really historic race because it seems like those are the types of events that you're drawn to uh, mm-hmm. for good reason. Uh, the the fabled Dipsy. You came in second this year. Can you uh, tell me a little bit about that day? Yeah, so for people that don't know, the Dipsy is the oldest trail race in the US. This year was the 111th edition of it. The only race older than the US is the Boston Marathon, which is like 120 to 130 times. Um, so it started, the Dipsy race started as kind of a bet where guys were wanting to see who could run from Mill Valley across Mount Tam, over to Stinson Beach, who could do it quickest. And back in the early days in the 1900s, it was like, you pick your best line. Since then, it's become, it, because it's, Dipsy's now a trail, uh, people have kind of standardized the route you can take, but still some shortcuts you can do. Uh, so it ends up being around seven, seven and a half miles with 2,500 feet of climbing. Other things, unique wrinkles that they've added into the race is that it's age and gender handicapped. So like, over a 25-minute period, they have 750 runners that they let off the 85-year-old above men, 65 above women, 8-year-old below kids, let them off first. And then every minute, they let a new batch of athletes off down till the 25, 20 to 25-year-old men 25 minutes later. So that's 750 of the runners. Then it's a very challenging race to get into. So they have a lottery for, the other, for 750 spots. And if it's your first year, they give you a 25-minute penalty. So from 8 to 8.25, they let off the people who are who are in the front, the first like kind of range of, of minute gaps between old and young. 
And then the next 25 minutes, they let off another batch of the same kind of gender and age split. Um, for the first year runners, they have to uh, they give them a 25 minute penalty. So you have to earn your way back. If you finish in the top 50%, you get back the following year. So I did it for the first time in 2019 and I came 499th, but I was the first person from the uh, the runner section, first year section. So I qualified back and got a little award for that. In 2021, I was kind of hurt coming into the race, but I ended up coming 10th and I won what they have, they call it the fade of the black shirt. So if you finish in the top 35, you get this old school, just plain black, kind of American football style, baggy jersey uh, with your number one through 35. So we ended up getting 10th at that. And then this year, they ended up coming second. Um, this year, actually, usually the last couple of years, it was won by males 60 to 70 or 60 to 65. But this year, actually, the top six, the top five, five of the top six were all between 30 and four, or between like 25 and 40. Uh, so Eddie Owens, young guy, like 28, he ended up winning it. He ended up like running the fastest time. Not even close to setting the, the record on it. Uh, I was next, and then we had three women in their late 30s and a woman in their early 50s, Chris Lundy, um, who were like 36. So it was kind of a, a big shift. Usually the, the last couple of years, the 60-year-old men had the monopoly, but now we have some young people and some women coming into it. Um, but like in the, in the top 35, we had people as young as 28. Did we have, no, we had teenagers. We had young teenage males up to like... 68 year old women and uh, 70 year old men and everyone in between so it's kind of cool when you look at the the age the age gap like the age range across the top 35 so yeah that's a race i'm going to try to every year if anyone's in the area or beyond i'd recommend put this single dipsy on your radar and try to do it try to watch it it's a very unique unique event yeah and it's not just like seven and a half miles like flat either it's like i think there's what 20 25 ish 100 feet of climbing there's poison oak there's stairs there's rocks there's shortcuts where you can fall over there's people elbowing you um it's chaos it's chaos and madness yeah i mean some of the shortcuts are called like suicide and the like midway point is called like cardiac so to give you an idea of uh of how technical it can be and like you're trying to run full gas while also trying to pass like hordes of people yeah. Um, without like maiming yourself or someone else, yeah. it's I'm what sh- happens at the Dipsy stays at the Dipsy. Yeah, yeah, and it also starts with what like I don't know a five hundred foot climb with just stairs. The the notorious Dipsy stairs. Yeah, the bottleneck that is the Dipsy stairs. Yeah, cool. Uh, before I get you out of here, I'm just curious um, what you have coming up this year. Yeah, so I'm going back to France. I just got back from a trip to France where I did a couple of short races and that trip to Ireland as well. Um, but now I'm going back to France at the end of August and I'm going to go longer again. I'm going to do 100K. CCC is the 100K that's part of the UTMB series. Uh, it stands for Cormier de Champelac de Chamonix. So it goes from Italy to Switzerland into France. Um, this will be my third time doing the race. It was my first big international 100k back in 2017, and I came 14th out of 2,000 people. Really proud of that. Last year, I had stomach turned, and I had a rough second half of the race. I ended up coming like in the 40s, like an hour slower. So this year, my goal is redemption. I want to try finishing the top 10 of that, or maybe even a little higher. And uh, so some big goals uh, for that race uh, at the end of August. Is that it? Or do you have any other anything planned for? Uh, Trying like to decide. 
I'm trying to figure it out in the in November and late autumn. There's a the World Championships is on in Thailand, and prior to this year, the World Championships were kind of two separate events. There was the Ultra Trail World Champs, which is like a 50k to a 50 miler, and then there was the Mountain Running Champs, which had like a short mountain race and then a marathon distance race. Now, finally, both of those organizations have merged under the banner of World Athletics. So now there's going to be an event over four days. There'll be a VK. There'll be an up and downhill climb, which is like 10 to 15K. There'll be a marathon distance one. It'll be about 42K. And then there'll be an ultra, which will be like 80K. Um, I would like to do that. We're trying to see if Ireland is going to send a team because we just sent a large team to the Europeans last week in El Paso and the Canary Islands. So we'll see if the budget is there. But I'd like to try to go do that 80K in Thailand. If not, I'd probably will look at going to Ultra Trail Cape Town to do their 100k but I think um, the priority would be to do the, the Irish team uh, race then before that we have a lot of cross country races to do here in the Bay Area so I'll be tearing it up on the PA the Pacific Association Circuit with SFRC um, Tim Tolfson and them are organising this new trail race in Mammoth, the Mammoth Trail Fest so I might do the VK at that it'll be like four weeks after a uh, um, Four weeks after CCC, so I don't know how the legs will be. A week after CCC, uh, my North Face teammate, Mike Foote, is organizing the rut. And I have an entry to the VK if I want for that, but uh, I don't think my legs will be functioning at that time, so I may not be able to do that, unfortunately. Sorry, Mike. <laughs> You're a popular guy, Fatty O'Leary. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks for uh, thanks for sitting down and chatting with me. Yeah, cheers to the conversation. It's always, it's always good to have one. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Patty for the conversation. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from everyone here at Blister, please take good care of yourself, keep moving forward, and we'll talk to you again next week.